the Harry Potter books took the United Kingdom and America by storm. The children's fantasy series, written by British author J.K. Rowling, tells the story of an orphaned boy who discovers he's a wizard with magical powers. Harry is invited to attend the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, where he learns how to hone his craft with skills like broom riding, spell casting, and all about both the good and evil sides of magic. Supporters say Harry Potter is harmless fantasy, and like librarian Carolyn Ford, praise the books for getting kids to read. There would be very few children that would have taken a 200-page book with no pictures in it and even attempted it. And so that's making a big difference. But Harry Potter and his creator, author J.K. Rowling, aren't without critics. Some parents don't consider Harry Potter harmless at all. The books and the movie are full of occult imagery, and some parents worry that Harry Potter legitimizes witchcraft and opens a door to the occult for impressionable youngsters. Welcome to Wayward, episode 15. I'm Kent. I'm Mark. And we're here with Daniel Silver. Yes. And from across the pond, Jonathan Merton. Hello. So Daniel, would you like to introduce yourself and talk about who you are and how you got here? Sure. Uh, so my name's Daniel Silver. I'm a military brat. I was born in the Philippines. I grew up in Alabama, Texas, England, Germany, and then Virginia. Um, I went out to a little college out in Percival, Virginia, called Patrick Henry College, which is a very fundamentalist, evangelical college. Growing up, I was interested in sci-fi and video games and role-playing games, but um, one of the big things was I, I was really anti-Harry Potter, and it wasn't until I got to Patrick Henry that I actually uh, fell in love with that series. And after college, I kind of fell away from the faith for a while, from my Protestant upbringing, and I was working in the film industry. I was working as a lobbyist, political consultant, researcher um, for quite a while. Then I became a teacher for a number of years. I was teaching debate, history, speech. And then um, I'm going back to school now. Um, before that, about seven years ago, I converted to, to Eastern Orthodoxy. And I've been attending a small parish in Falls Church, Virginia for seven years now. Very cool. Uh, Jonathan. My good boy. Hi. Do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm a theology undergrad in Durham, uh, England, if you didn't know by the accent. Um, I grew up in a very conservative Protestant background as well, and I converted to Orthodoxy in the past uh, year and a half as well. Maybe it was a, a year this um, Lazarus Saturday gone, Lazarus Saturday being the day before Palm Sunday. And I'm involved in a lot of activism in Durham as well. Cool, man. I don't I, meet a lot of other uh, folks received on Lazarus Saturday. To uh, first-time wayward guests, and we're on to talk about science fiction and discernment and theological imagination. And we've invited uh, Daniel on to talk about his project, which is the Doxicon Project, Daniel, do you want to introduce us to Doxicon a little bit and talk about uh, what's slated for this year? Sure. So Doxicon started a couple of years ago with uh, Father David Sumo um, of Foster Church and my 
myself, and we were just talking about our shared love of science fiction and fantasy, and we thought it would be really interesting to have a convention where we talk about those genres that we love from the view of our faith and discernment. So many people who like these fictions are told they shouldn't or they're wrong for doing it. And so, like, for example, growing up, I, I thought Harry Potter was the Antichrist and I thought it was the worst. And, you know, and, and when I talked to it with my other friends, it was kind of, you know, oh, keep it quiet. We don't talk about that at church. We don't talk about that with our faith. It's kind of this own separate thing. And really what I wanted to do was bring into the mainstream of, of Christianity and, and talk about it. That's really what I've been focusing on for the past couple of years. And so the first year that we, we did it, it was pretty small. We were just gathering in a Hilton in Springfield. Um, and this is our third Doxicon in D.C. We've, we've also had a Doxicon in Seattle for the past couple of years is now, and we're looking at expanding to other locations such as Toronto and Houston. Um, our, our keynote this year, as some of your listeners might be aware of, uh, Leah Labresco, and she's going to be talking about fantasy, wizardry, and the wounds of the world, and just talking about how wizards are often uh, trying to heal the world and how they go about that in the wrong and right way. Very cool. And what is your level of involvement with, with the Doxicon outside of D.C.? Outside of D.C., I work with the Seattle people from time to time. Uh, they've pretty much started up their own thing. Um, with Toronto, um, I helped out a little bit. Um, I, I was living up there for a couple of months, and I I was hoping to that with that, uh, but I'm primarily involved in the the DC Doxicon. Neat. So it's it's uh, it's caught a fire on its own a little bit. You've sort of managed to kindle something that's taken off. Yeah, we're, we've been very happy with the response. Very cool. Uh, Daniel, you'd sent us Saint Basil the Great's address to young men on the right use of Greek literature, which I gather is kind of a founding document for Doxicon. Would you mind introducing that document to us and the, sort of the thesis of it and how he built his argument and the role that it's played also in, in the Doxicon project as you've developed it? Yeah, so uh, St. Basil and his address to the youth is a document from about 379 AD. And in it, he's talking to a group of, of youth about the proper use of the pagan and heathen literature of the time. And he said it's, these literatures are good for exercising our spiritual perception upon, practicing, okay, what does good character look like? What, what does doing good look like in these in these literature that aren't as complex as the fathers or the scriptures? And, and, and you practice your discernment upon that. And, you know, when I was reflecting upon that, I was thinking back to my youth when I was reading, like, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and as a child, practicing my spiritual perception on the allegories in that book. And, you know, when I became Orthodox, Aslan's sacrifice in that book really informed my understanding of the Orthodox uh, Christus Victor model of Christ's death and resurrection. And so when it came time to kind of give some spiritual backing to Doxicon and our mission, I, you know, I was immediately drawn to St. Basil and his address to the youth. Um, and for me, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, you know, these are our versions of the Odyssey and the Greek and Roman tales of the time. And so we, we really need to kind of practice our spiritual discernment and perception upon those. Yeah, it's quite interesting because his argument seems to be, as, as far as I'm able to, to discern it, uh, that uh, Homer and classical poets and historians are useful insofar as young people are, are kind of incapable of really... Um, sinking their teeth into the scriptures. 
which is kind of an interesting thing to, to insist upon. I, I wonder, though, I mean, there are some pretty critical differences, right, between these classical literary sources and contemporary genre fiction, right? I mean, Homer serves a very different role in the Greek imagination than, you know, the, the Marvel universe does for us, correct? So I, I'm curious in drumming up a conversation about where the boundaries ought to be, because I think we also have kind of an example in, in St. Augustine, right, and the Colosseum, or even in, in Basil, right, he only really references theater, for example, in kind of negatively. He seems to think of theater as uh, not really worthy of this kind of reflection. Um, it only kind of crops up when he's using it as a negative example. I wonder what your experience is, I guess, in, in, in drawing the boundaries for what is and isn't fruitful for Christian reflection. I think that's a real practice and discernment, and that's something that we've been focusing on at Doxicon. And I, I would probably tend to agree with you that something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe doesn't have as many positives that we can learn from as, say, Homer or something like that. But, you know, we actually do have a speaker this uh, this year who's actually going to be looking at authority in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, and kind of trying to draw some of those. And so I'm really interested to see how he's doing it. And, you know, we, we invite people to Doxicon to speak who might not even necessarily agree with other speakers or myself on like what we should practice a sermon on. And so um, that's really interesting. But I, I, I would say something like Lord of the Rings or, you know, Chronicles of Narnia. I, I would argue pretty strongly that those have a similar place in our, our culture as Homer did in the Greek and Roman times, because they, you know, they're such cornerstones of our culture for the most part, especially the more geekier, nerdy ones. And so I, I, I think that, and I think that they're, I think they're good literature. I, I think we can, with discernment, uh, read those. Um, maybe there's a little more to talk about with like Star Wars or Harry Potter, um, about discernment, about how we use those. But um, I tend to take a very broad view of, of what we can and can't participate in, M meaning I, I, would, I would err towards participating in more rather than, than less. And uh, I, But I can get St. Basil's point, and you know, something that I came across when I was looking at Doxicon that kind of got me after a couple of years was like Game of Thrones. Like I stopped watching that because that's just... There, there is very little good in there, and it's, it is like watching the Colosseums or... The theaters in the Roman times, you know, there's not a lot of good um, in that. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that a lot of people, I think, more and more in the past few years, have picked up on how central Harry Potter's become as a kind of cultural frame of reference, even for like the people we think of as, or maybe once were thought of as like public intellectuals, like journalists, and that it seems that their dominant frame of reference for understanding the world is like Harry Potter, which. I, I think that's interesting with regard to kind of say Homer, because I know that Homer was regarded by the Greeks at least as almost in a way analogous to scripture. And and there's there's something interesting there, isn't there? Because for, for Basil, he says that you should read Homer, but you should kind of ignore all the stuff where they're kind of praying to the pagan gods and kind of you shouldn't accept their views of divinity and whatever. That's something similar you have to say about it's embarrassing to say it's something similar you have to say about harry potter isn't it because yeah, i think a christian obviously any of us can read harry potter but there's a way of reading harry potter that's become dominant and kind of assumed as a cultural frame of reference that maybe we should be cautious about adopting wholesale just because it's really stupid could you articulate what what kind of particular vision of harry potter it is that you're thinking of well it's it's basically kind of you know everyone we don't like is voldemort everyone we <laughs> like is everyone we like is obviously harry you know like like the, the classic example is jk rowling saying that harry potter wouldn't in, endorse uh boycott divestment <laughs> sanctions on israel and 
Like, if you think a thing about a political issue, you should be able to argue for it beyond just, like, Harry Potter would be against it. And that's not even a good political interpretation of the book. To, to take it in a slightly different direction, too, there's actually a group that's called um, Harry Potter in the Sacred Texts that's actually reading Harry Potter as though it were the sacred text of their religion and trying to interpret it in that way, which I think is kind of doing what St. Basil said, where you're like, you're like, oh, let's just focus on the pagan prayers to the gods in the Roman Greek literature and <laughs> pretend like that's the important part. Um, and so I think discernment, you can go both ways in Aaron. You can be like taking it too literally or too symbolically. Um, well, that, that is interesting though, right, uh, Jonathan, about about Rowling's comment about Harry Potter opposing divestment and sanctions or whatever, because it's it's about imitation, right? Because what, what Basil advocates is a conscious imitation of figures of virtue in literature. And it's, well, it's a kind of, it's a kind of a, a what would Jesus do? Um, yeah. The, the thing is, is that that's, imitation is, is a good ethical model. I'm not opposed. In fact, I really like it as an ethical model in some ways. Um, uh-huh. But if, if that's your only model, your only model is kind of imitation in a very rigid sense, just yeah. much like a kind of what would Jesus do, right. it actually really hollows out any right. way of having a conversation about what one should or shouldn't be doing, because you just, whatever you think is a good thing to do, you, obviously Jesus would be doing that. I think that with regard to Harry Potter, it, it means that... Um, Whatever one thinks of Harry Potter, you have to say that he's not openly fascist and it's not, nor is it kind of politically radical in that way. And so it, it obviously, get, it, it naturally gets assimilated to a kind of, when it's transferred into a politics, it gets transferred into a kind of fairly bland liberalism. You don't even really need to read the book to kind of, to, to give that view of things. You don't have to know what you're talking about at all. You just kind of know Harry Potter good, Voldemort bad. And you don't need to have a conversation about what you're thinking or why. Maybe one of the things that that differentiates contemporary media in some ways, but also not really, from from classical literature, is is ideology, right? I mean, Homer's not devoid of ideology, but in some sense, the distance that that Byzantine readers have from Homer um, makes it maybe easier to 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 read Homer as Christians. Whereas we're kind of, I don't know, I may be kind of wandering off. but No, I think that's right. Um, I, I, this, is, this is an interesting thing in that I have read things and there's, so obviously fan fiction and kind of fan writing is a big thing. And so it seems from what I gather, there is a kind of small, Daniel might be able to comment more on this, a kind of conflict between within the Harry Potter kind of fan base, between people who are kind of very, very favorable to the texts, and then those who are kind of very willing to kind of go off and riff off and create their own thing with it. Um, And I guess that's because we are so close to it that that's a conflict, because after a certain amount of time has passed, um, there's a space between the original kind of text and the kind of community um, which allows for more diverse rewritings and use of tropes in different ways. Although even then, there's something different now as well because we have copyright law and kind of printable media in a way that they, the Greeks didn't. Um, so that you're right, there's kind of factors there that make our position to, to Harry Potter different from Basil's to Homer. So Daniel, if that's the case, if there are perhaps modern pagan uses of our popular media that are deficient, 
on what foundation do you propose we begin using our media to cultivate Christian moral or theological reasoning? Um, I would say in some ways, I, I, I think these tropes, in, in some regards, not in all regards, are, are actually more in, in agreement with Christianity than the general culture, I think, actually. Because if you look at like science fiction and fantasy, if you look at like Harry Potter, Harry Potter is in agreement with us that you know humans have souls and that things like love can overcome death. And so in, in a sense, we actually need to be grasping onto those things mm more strongly um than the culture around us because the culture around us is like oh yeah that's kind of cute you know like love is great but we're actually like wait a minute yeah love is great and that you know christ's um you know christ's love for us is what overcame death itself and and so we're we're almost like oh that's really nice but we're going to take it a step further mm. um than you are in that in that fiction so can you give us some good examples of of Papers presented at Doxicon, maybe that have that have done this exceptionally well, that you you feel particularly excited about, or maybe typify the the mode of Doxicon particularly well. Yeah, so one of my favorite speakers and one of my favorite presenters is actually Leah Lebraska, who's going to be our keynote speaker. And and last at the last Doxicon, she gave us a topic that was a approach to world building, um, and she was looking at. Um, J.R. Tolkien, uh, Orson Scott Card, and G.K. Chesterton, and how they approached building the worlds in their fiction and she made she made uh, three really good points that I that I loved um, which was that we've lost a sense of wonder about our, our world essentially you know as a culture in general and that science fiction fantasy actually helps us find that again you know because in today's days we don't really deal with stakes that are like life death and salvation but we can find those in fantasy and science fiction um, in science fiction, the alienness of another world helps us rediscover the mystery of our own world, actually. Like, you know, when we consider, you know, strange worlds out there where love can defeat death, we come back to our own world and are like, oh, wait a minute, that's actually true here, too. Like, that seemed weird, but now it's not. Um, and then, you know, like I said, you know, she, she also talked about how science fiction fantasy are one of the few places in popular culture that still argues that humans are both mortal and also transcendent. And then finally, you know, when she pairs away parts of our world, we can step back and kind of take a look at the deeper truth. So when we, you know, when we look at different worlds, when we look at science fiction and fantasy worlds, and we can see common threads in there, we can see the deeper truths that, that stand in our world. And so, um, yeah, so, so Leah's, Leah's speech that um, on world building was just amazing and really looked at kind of how the genres overall can, can work with us. Yeah, that's very cool. I, I guess an, an effort of re-enchantment, right? Yeah, one of the speakers in our first year, uh, Machusco Donna Farley, actually gave a talk that was entitled A Spell for the Refreshment of the Spirit, and it, and it gave this example from Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where you know where one of the characters looks at this the book in the magician's house and um she looks at you know what makes a good story and how does the, how do how do those symbols in the story kind of point us back to the deeper truths and back to christ eventually and so i i think that's a big thing is is that is that good stories are going to point us back to the you know the deeper truths that are present in our world i i certainly think that you're right in that uh our culture in general is one in which there is no sense of the transcendent at all, or, or rather it pretends there's no sense of the transcendent. There is a transcendent, but it's, it's claimed to be purely imminent. 
Um, yeah. Whereas sci-fi or fantasy literature kind of is very open about kind of a transcendence um, in a way that wider culture isn't. So I think you're certainly right about that. I'm I'm not hugely I'm not as familiar with sci-fi fantasy as I might like to be, particularly not for this conversation. But um, in my experience of it, there seem to be two strands. Um, and one we might call like the heroic strand, and that's kind of your stuff like Star Trek. Um, and that's kind of, you know, bold adventurers, kind of, you know, going probably when no one's been before, et cetera, et cetera. But the other strand, which I, I might call gothic, I, that's fairly broad. I guess that goes beyond just sci-fi fantasy. But that the, the figures in gothic culture are presented with the other, it, the, uh, but the other is an interruption. In, in most of modern culture, we, we've just been talking about kind of the sense in which the absence of the other, the transcendent the other, is not something that we encounter, in, we, we acknowledge in culture. But the, the Gothic is defined by that moment of the recognition of the other. But that moment is, it's so unprecedented in the previous categories for understanding that it can only appear as a threat and as a horror. For example, the kind of classic writer, and this is a kind of fasci- almost fascistic sense, someone like Lovecraft, um, who kind of, his world is one in which kind of, it's what his figures are surrounded by this vast abyss of kind of evil that threatens to swallow them up at any moment. Um, in Lovecraft, this is certainly kind of um, a white supremacist fantasy. But you get this in other fiction and it's it takes on a very different form so a good example of this is is i think it came out last year but uh, stranger things in which the sense in which there's a very definite ambiguity in stranger things between whether the other is a horror or whether it's redemptive um and that's not really resolved in in the first season you know it is is the other a, th- a threat or is it kind of what saves you from the threat and how how best we understand it um and i think that's quite productive that's the thing i really like in sci-fi and fantasy in, in what i know of it would you consider in the case of stranger things um so if i recall it, it's pretty much the entire thing is just uh amalgamation of sort of 1980s early 1990s um <laughs> sci-fi television shows so what do you think that that plays a particular role the fact that it pretty much just draws on from more or less not unconscious memories, but sort of half forgotten memories um, from, at least I would imagine their target audience's childhood. Yes. Um, I, I think that definitely plays a role. Um, that kind of sense of collation, a kind of, is that a word I'm looking for? Kind of the sense that they're kind of combining things. Well, it's almost like there's um, some sort of narrative behind all of the multiple different, sci-fi stories coming together in this i think a good way of understanding stranger things is that it's definitely new there's definitely something about this a new like different it's something it's very now 27 to like 2016 Mm. but it's also it is that because it's like you say it seems to almost articulate a broader tradition it kind of presents to you kind of itself as um this is a, a way of understanding all these previous things that went before, um, which is something that makes it interesting. Um, so you say so it's basically similar to Harry Potter is that this we're actually witnessing the development of a new sort of popular tradition. Yeah, almost. Um, 
I mean, what's going on in the back of my mind when I say that? I'm actually thinking about um, the way Alistair McIntyre talks about Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. um, which is he kind of talks about it's not that what Aquinas does for McIntyre is that he kind of takes older, the older kind of traditions, um, McIntyre defines them as Augustinian and Aristotelian, and puts them in dialogue in such a way that what you get is neither merely a kind of Augustinianism or an Aristotelianism, but something new that is mm-hmm. kind of trying to, claiming to articulate both. Mm. Um, obviously, you can't quite, there's not quite an easy, here are two things for Stranger Things. Um, it's kind of, there's a set of cultural tropes and images and narratives. Right. And I guess that, more what I was thinking of is that now we realize that there is, it's not that it's we're consciously creating a new tradition, but that we're realizing that this has actually become a, that the, the tradition has already kind of been established. That, you know, what what was uh, 20 years ago, just whatever happened to be on television is now uh, a genre, is now like a way we actually understand, you know, entertainment and the world and all these sorts of things where, you know, all these disparate bits unintentionally, you know, we're not realizing at the time, but all these shows that are coming out in the yeah. late 1980s express a certain sort of anxiety about the world. And now, you know, Stranger Things kind of articulates all of that in a a new, more unified single show. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a good way of saying it. I, I think it's, and that kind of, Stranger Things couldn't have been made in the 80s or, or even in the late, early 90s mm-hmm. because it's it's too close to the, the event. It's too close. So right. to be able to articulate those kind of underlying themes, motifs in the way it does, it couldn't do that at the time when they're, when they're happening. It's, it's, you, it's, it would be too close to really see them. But now there's a distance it can articulate them in a way that it couldn't have before. And so do you think similarly if, you know, but if, if history had been different and Basil had been, you know, addressing the young men in the time of uh, like Pericles and, you know, the, the golden age of Athens, if he had been instructing them in the way to use Greek literature when it was, you know, a much more, a much closer, more integral part of their society. Whereas, you know, by the fourth century AD, um, to many of his students, already those there, there's a greater sense of removal from from those from those those stories. Yeah, I think it's it's worth saying that it's difficult to say because um, our society change the change happens now. Society much quicker than it did then. Mm-hmm. Um, modern society in the west at least there's a very fast rate of change whereas there's there's a certain stability in greek culture in a way that we're unused to but i think it's easy to overestimate that especially because it was so long ago so yeah no no i think you're right yeah um i think that i think that's interesting because i think that a a modern person so the, the plays for example that augustine says christians shouldn't go shouldn't go to the theater they shouldn't see these plays um I think modern Christians could easily watch those plays and it not have any of the detrimental effects <laughs> Augustine was worried about. But we couldn't. But, but there are maybe aspects of modern culture that Augustine's advice would apply to. Um, in fact, I'm sure there are. I, mean, I can think of examples in my head right now. Um, you know, there, there are those things. It's just they're not the same anymore. They're mm-hmm. immediate. But then maybe in 50 years' time, they won't be anymore. And there'll mm. be new things. And, and there is a sense of... 
I, I don't want to imply a kind of absolute relativism or anything like that, but there there is a sense of kind of um, a, a distance does change things, yeah. And I wonder, do any of you have any thoughts if the particular medium changed things too? So yeah, so Basil mentions the, the theater and all that. Because um, I was thinking of, uh, you know, in The Republic, Plato warns against uh, music. Yeah. That, you know, the intensity of music. And then, you know, all the way up to modern day when, you know, Alan Bloom rails against the Rolling Stones um, and how they're just, it, it's not just, you know, tacky and sucks. It's actually degenerating the youth as we speak. Is there something about literature that is unique in that in that regard a way that it, it's able to either more or less sort of capture the the mind and soul of the the reader huh well yeah i mean augustine can rightly warn against the bloodshed of the Colosseum. right, right? well that's because obvious yeah it's, it's sensual bloodshed and yet at the same time the father can be much less suspicious of homer uh, i mean the iliad's a very violent work of literature and so i guess there's um there's a lack of sensuousness maybe that accounts for I guess it's a more noetic medium. <laughs> That's interesting. But I, I know that, like, certainly for guys like Gregory Nazianzen, literary media are helpful. Like, the, the, the crafting of literary media is helpful in a particular way because it can be sort of poured over and measured. And putting oneself into the rhythm of writing poetry, for example, can be an exercise of virtue in itself. Mm. Um, and, I, yeah, I think, it, I think, I mean, I wonder if, if literature isn't maybe the one medium that manages to stay stable because certainly like i think that the the argue like plato's argument against music is a different one than the arguments of like 20th century moralists against rock and roll right like plato's argument is that it makes you soft which is different from the argument of like someone who might am i right about that i mean yeah i mean the the the, the specific concerns um i mean because alan bloom writes this in his uh his commentary on on the republic on this passage i think i think that's where it is Anyway, I mean, it's yeah. The, the 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 effects of the music are different, but the the concern that there is something innate to the the medium of music that it's able to control and alter the soul of the listener. Um, mm-hmm. I, that that that's what I was thinking of. Is that Alan Bloom does not have the same, doesn't, or at least does not express the same concern for like smut literature. Like, yeah. he, he, I'm sure he would still hate Fifty Shades of Grey, but he's like his concern specifically is about what music and sound and rhythm, especially sort of empty and hollow fake sexuality expressed in lyrics, uh. conveyed through sort of at least you know in his mind extremely sexual rhythm sort of thing. Yeah. Like that's that that that's an anxiety specific to music that both he and Plato share. Yeah, and I guess the way that music is received does change relative to one's position in history, as as Jonathan suggests, right? Because, like, the a lot of these things are, are... Whether a rhythm is or is not sexual is really not inherent in the rhythm, right? Right. It's it's the listener that... And, and sort of all of the, the culture surrounding that experience that informs its... Uh, yeah, it's I interesting. Think, so in Byzantine music, right, uh, tone seven is called the grave tone because it's the tone that to, to Byzantine ears sounded mournful. To the modern Western ear, it's, it's there's nothing of that in the in the mode. It, there's it's not a it's not a mournful mode to our ears. All of them sound mournful. <laughs> That's what I've been told anyway. <laughs> I think it's worth noting that um, it's not just music. So uh, when the novel first appeared, kind of, or 
grew as a genre in kind of the in the late 1700s 1800s um it was seen as kind of not only kind of not really literature not really worth it but it was seen as kind of uh, it was associated with kind of moral failings of young women especially kind of mm. uh, kind of a decadence and idleness and a, and a kind of also a kind of a lack of sexual morality again and so this happens time and time again with new new cultural media that it's often associated with these kind of moral failings um that you know it, it may well be that the new media I mean, I'm, obviously, one should, I, I think it would be naive to say that media has no moral function, um, but that's not necessarily intrinsic to the media at the time of its production. Um, it's it's kind of context, more contextual than that. Yeah, clearly, like, theatre in, in Basil's time is not the same thing as classical Greek theatre, right? There's, like, actual... I mean, I don't know what classical Athenian theatre really looked like, but certainly there was overlap between like the role of an actor and the role of a sex worker in Byzantium that colored his perception of, uh, mm. and, and even the realities of kind of the, the moral character of, of theater as a medium. I feel like theater and, you know, film and TV oftentimes put all of that into a specific context that you can't really remove it from. So like if you're, if you have like a sound, if you have some music, it's given context by the action on the stage or the action on the film and so you you almost unlike literature you can't remove it from from that context it's almost given context by itself um and so i think i think that's why maybe you know we see this general instruction against theater maybe yeah i think i think that's true i think that so for example to go back to Lovecraft again, I, I can enjoy Lovecraft because often, because it's literature. When I say white supremacist, I don't just mean I know you know this aside from the text. I mean, if you just read his stories, you can tell. Um, like it's, he's, it's often not very thinly veiled at all. No, um, not at all. But, <laughs> but, but, but once even, but because it's literature, you can read that and you can invert it quite easily just right, as a reader. Right. Um, which would be quite different if Lovecraft had been like, I don't know, if he'd made kind of little, instead of short stories, he'd made little 20 minute TV episodes, um, which are, would essentially be little white supremacist propaganda films. Um, I mean, there's not much you can do with a propaganda film. <laughs> well, let's circle back around in that direction then uh, onto the way in which like de- depictions of aliens and strangers and, and you know, the transcendent other informs theological imagination. Daniel, there's been some work on uh, extraterrestrials presented at Doxophon. Um, can you present that in short to us by any chance? So the the discussion that we had in the past, one of the ones that I sent you was from Doxicon Seattle, and it looked at um, St. Christopher, who was the, in icons, is often depicted as kind of the dog-headed saint. Um, and what it was saying was the people who in that culture who were looking at these these uh, you know these others from other parts of the world viewed him as so other that they you know they they depicted him as having a dog head and so the presenter at doxicon looked at this and it was like you know when we encounter aliens we're going to encounter another it's it's not going to be so different than when people encountered other people cultures here on Earth, and it's really going to be a challenge for us to examine how we treat and consider the other. And so, yeah, so that, that that's what we've discussed at Doxicon before. 
Yeah, it's a cool one. And it's it's neat to sort of invert. Dogheaded St. Christopher is dear to my heart, and in part because it's such an interesting uh, case study in the peculiarities of our mode of thinking, that if you're a 13th century Russian peasant or whatever, that like you can look at uh, some, something clearly monstrous and just kind of take it on its face to be a human being, despite the fact that it's it looks nothing like you, is yeah. like a really good argument. Well, for one thing, for like like the fact that racism is an ideology with history <laughs> rather than just sort of like a pan-human phenomenon, but also that like like the way we fall back on depicting the transcendent as a horror or the other as a horror has is is peculiar to us in a certain way, despite the fact that we're much more sheltered and cushioned from the actual dangers of the natural world, for example, than medievals would have been. Would you consider that despite or actually, you know, one being the cause of the other? Yeah, I don't know how to make that argument, but I have a suspicion. <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's interesting that you, you get a rise in kind of interest in kind of ghosts and supernatural and kind of modern society, in like modern Western societies. Um, but it's kind of self-conscious, whereas in kind of societies where that's kind of still an accepted norm, not only is it not really thought about, it's just kind of like, yeah, that's a thing. Um, but also they're not as malevolent. Um, I mean, they are sometimes, often even, um, but there's usually kind of positive sides, whereas actually like nowadays, it's rare you'll hear a ghost story, for example, with like, ghost stories aren't positive stories. They're not stories where the person comes out of it, you know, mm. feeling good about the world. Whereas actually in often many cultures go, well, in cult, ghosts are never like unequivocally good because they're dead. Um, and most cultures, I think rather healthily don't see dead things as positives, but there's, there's often a sense of kind of, you, there's something you can get from experiencing that, mm. um, which we don't really, that's not really a feature of Western, of like, at least in kind of ghost stories and kind of the popular Western imaginary, it's not a thing we have. Yeah, there's a practice in Tibetan Vajrayana, sort of the, the, the strand of it that's more influenced by the indigenous religion, as, as far as I'm aware, where you actually go out with the specific intention of being fed upon by malevolent spirits because a way of exercising compassion. I mean, I don't think it's a health, healthy practice necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't suggest that Christians do it, for example. But it's an interesting, I don't know, it's I, that that's such a, for someone who's, whose imagination is formed by contemporary horror media, it's just a, a strange thing to, to think about. Well, Christianity has that as well in some senses. So when you read the Desert Fathers, they, they talk all the time about they go out into the desert because temptation is stronger there. Right. Um, my favorite story from the Desert Fathers, I think it's John the Dwarf. I can't remember, though, but I think it's John the Dwarf who he prayed to God that God would relieve his temptations and God grants him this prayer. And he rushes to his spiritual father to say, you know, God, God, God's relieved me of all my temptations. When he tells his spiritual father this, um, the older monk says, what, what, what on earth are you doing? I immediately ask him, ask him to give them you back. Um, you need temptations. Um, you need this. And there's a sense, and, and temptations to the fathers, the desert fathers are tied to the demonic and kind of experience of demons. And that's what they're going out for. It's what yeah. they want, and and in a sense, need. There's a kind of there's no point in. What's the point of you're not that you're not going to be saved at all if you don't have this kind of demonic experience? And I agree that that's that raises questions, and it's not something that's kind of been brought into Christian this Christian spiritual life in general. Um, but it is there. Um, yeah. 
That's interesting. There's, there's, I don't know if any of you ever read um, White Noise by Don DeLillo, but there's a great moment in that when I've forgotten the name of the character, but they're wandering around this mall. Um, and one of the characters is a professor in television. And so he comes out with all these crazy things all the time. Um, he, they're wandering around this mall and he says, you know, this is just like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, really, except we're shopping instead of dying. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I, it's, you know, I haven't been able to notice over the past um, maybe 15, 20 years, at least in the, the popular media, especially television and film that I've consumed, is I saw sort of this rise of hyper-rational explanations. Um, and, you know, I think, Daniel, you're a bit closer to my age um, than the two young pups here. Um, <laughs> when I was in college, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, um, the big popular TV figures were the the hyper-rationalists, like the Dr. House kind of thing. Um, yeah. And e- even even mm. where there would seem to be a miracle or something like that, it would always be hedged through some form of rational or materialist explanation. And now, you know, between you know, like big big budget shows, Young Pope, Game of Thrones, um, Stranger Things, that there's a completely serious and unironic depiction of supernatural forces um, in ways that aren't hedged at all by you know, scientific or materialist explanations. Um, I don't know if it's just, you know, me going through different temperaments in my life, what I've consumed myself. Have you noticed anything similar? I really have. Um, you know, I talking about how specifically, you know, there was one episode, one where he, you know, he was helping a pregnant woman and trying to save the child's life. And, you know, the, the child during the operation, like reached out and took his finger and there was like this dramatic moment. And you're thinking, Oh, this is going to change house in some way. And it never did. And like, even though house experienced all these things, it, it, you know, the the whole point of the show, I was, I was reading an interview with, with the show writer um, afterwards. And he was like, my whole point is that no one ever changes ever. Um, yeah, and I was just like, "What?" The? People, well, I mean, that, that, that was always House's lines. People don't change. And then this whole—I remember in the last couple seasons, the last season, they this whole thing where House goes to like a psychiatric institute, and he's working with a counselor, and he's like doing all these changes, and his life seems to be going great. And in the last season, he just like throws it all away, and this—and the series ends. Spoiler alert. With him just back to the way he was, with the same people in the same things, right, yeah. and it's just like, and that was one of the most popular shows mm-hmm. around that time, yeah. And so it's like, it's just like, oh my word, that's so depressing. Like I was so depressed after after watching that show because mm-hmm. it was like nothing changes. And actually, if I can if I can plug one of our talks a little bit, Eve Tushnet is actually talking about this and and her talk, and she's talking about the, the humiliation of authority in horror films. Um, and one of the things she's talking about is in these horror films, in these films, like when something happens, the protagonists often turn to the sources of knowledge they've been trained to trust, you know, the scientists, the doctors, the cops. But in, in the horror films, these authorities fail. You know, they don't know what to do. They, you know, their super rational mind can't take it. And so they oftentimes, you know, turn to the last-ditch authority you know, religious authority, the, you know, defiantly unmodern and unintelligible 
but oftentimes they're the ones that have the answers. And to go back to uh, Stranger Things a little bit, I, I did like Stranger Things, but I was super disappointed that like there's never any mention of religion. Like like there was a funeral, and you never like the the pastor <laughs> never says anything. There's never a priest. You know, it's it's like so. so I, I like speaker. I like Stranger Things, but it 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 was almost kind of a return to that you know, 80s and 90s, like, super rationalistic thing just because of the source material. Yeah. I might want to push back on that a little bit. Uh, Just, just, I I think it's interesting that in Stranger Things, the the opponents, the the only people who talk about what's going on in kind of scientific terms are the opponents, unequivocally. So the the person who um, Eleven think calls Papa, I mean, he, he's the kind of he's the figure of kind of scientific rationalism, almost the kind of the head of the kind of science laboratory. But you are right in that there is often best of these kind of things where they do explore kind of the unexplainable, even if they're ultimately hostile to it. So the X-Files is a great example where they're ultimately hostile to religion, I feel. Mm, um, yeah. But, but it recurs again and again and again. And really interesting, really, really interesting ways. Um, and it's it's never quite containable within the way, even within the way Mulder likes to think of the world. It's So, yeah, you're definitely right. And there's, no, sorry. I've, I said I'll push back, but actually I do think you're right. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm just argumentative. Yeah, well, I, it's kind of a hot take, but I think that maybe, like, this maybe died with Christopher Hitchens. I don't think that, like, Dawkins is cool anymore amongst... amongst no. Uh, no, like, definitely not. Yeah. Middle school, high schoolers. I don't think that he has... He has this, he plays the same kind of... I mean, Hitchens certainly is, is no longer operating as a public intellectual anymore, and I think Dawkins types, they're not the kind of rock stars that they used to be. But I, yeah, I'm interested in the way in which this kind of horror... The worldview of a lot of contemporary horror media is maybe a, a kind of a useful paganism for us, right? That, like... A, a good way to articulate the gospel in our milieu is is as an assurance that the transcendent other is actually looking out for you, is actually benevolent rather than predatory. Yeah, um, this is how I think about The Wicker Man. The, the, it's kind of bland as a horror film, even. It's good. I really love it as a film. But I think that I've, I've joked that um, Sergeant Howie is the only good cop um uh, he's kind of I don't know if you know the Wicker Man. Okay? Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, in the like the whole point of the film is you're supposed to get to the end. And it's almost like a kind of Christianity is the kind of helpless kind of the kind of forces of order and like the the kind of ordered world of Sergeant Howie is kind of helpless against this kind of natural cosmic or like the kind of cosmic um, sensuality of the Islanders to the point it's not only helpless but helpless to the point of destruction. Order only can only disintegrate in the flames even. Um, but actually, if anything, by the end of it, I feel that Howie how is kind of... I don't think it's as, as, as clear... I think it's easy to, to read the film in the almost the opposite way. I think that's boring, necessarily. I don't think that I'm necessarily interested in defending kind of the pure forces of order against sensuality in that way. That's kind of a bland opposition. It's not helpful. But it's, it's just as convincing to say that Sergeant Howie is right to call the islanders delusional in that they think that marching him will save them. But it's not quite so clear that Howie is delusional in being willing to be martyred mm. or that he isn't a genuine martyr. I feel as a sense in the film, it's, try, it, it's almost as if he isn't a willing martyr. But is, like, there's an ambiguity there, definitely, as whether he's a real martyr or a kind of just a victim, mm. um, which I like. I like that ambiguity. But I think that it's easy to read The Wicker Man as actually a, a defense of Christianity in some ways. 
um, a kind of a defensive kind of how, how he dies because he wants to save the girl. He, he wants to save someone who he believes is going to die unjustly. And he does, in a sense, die in their place, even though they were never going to be killed in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, he dies, in a sense, in their place. And, he, and in a sense, you can see it as a genuine um, imitation of, of Christ's suffering. In that sense, you can see how he is an imitable figure, a figure worthy of kind of admiration um, in a way that the villagers aren't really. I think that's a good a good example of what you're talking about, that kind of the way in which kind of horror can kind of be inverted against itself. Mm, that's really interesting, yeah. So D- Daniel, do you have any final closing thoughts? You know, certainly any recommendations you could give people who are curious about um, both what's, you know, done with Doxicon and if there's any, you know, similar writers you can recommend on the topic? Uh, I would I would mostly recommend uh, people go back and listen to some of our past talks. Um, we, we've put most of them up on our website, and Ancient Faith Radio has all of the Seattle ones out there, so that that's a really great resource for people. Um, you know, my, my close thought, I guess, would be that... I think we, I think we do need to engage with the culture, and you know, and, and if I, I look back at um, orthodoxy and their relationship to culture, you know, I, I, I see a lot of examples, and you know, I look at like Saint Methodius who engaged with the, you know the Slavic culture and inventing their own language. I look at Nicholas in Japan, who when he was translating the Bible into Japanese, engaged with. Um, Japanese culture, he actually often at times attended Buddhist events where traveling Buddhist preachers told stories and like, used those to help him translate the Bible. And so, it, you know, when we're looking at and Takan, um, I often get a lot of pushback to be like, oh, yeah, Tolkien and Lewis are fine, but we shouldn't read Harry Potter, we shouldn't watch Marvel films. Um, and it's a more complex than that. And sure. so um, I, you know, I was asked recently, is there anything you wouldn't have people talk on at Doxicon? Because I used to have a, I used to have a no anime policy. Um, <laughs> and someone, you know, some people came up and talked to me about that. And I was like, okay, maybe there's some, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too strict with that. And so um, also, I, would, I would invite almost anybody to talk about anything at Doxicon because I think that, the culture, and even if we disagree, I think really I I am more open to talking about almost any topic at this point. Because I mean, you think about where we've talked about it. This podcast, you know, we've talked about Stranger Things, Next Generation, um, House, which isn't necessarily science fiction fantasy, but is you know is kind of popular culture, and and so I I think we need to be open to taking the pieces from the culture. St. Peter said, you know, his, his analogy is we are like um, bees walking to the flowers and like the bees, you know, we take what is good and we leave what is not. And so, you know, talking about like what we talked about, you're, you're looking at it in the full context and you're not necessarily deleting certain things. You're, you're just, you're keeping what good from those things. Hmm. Very cool. Can you uh, tell us when... Doxicon Prime in 2017 is going to be? Oh, yes, yes, that, that would be very helpful. Um, so it's going to be August 18th and 19th, um, and it's going to be in D.C. at St. Sophia Greek Orthodox Cathedral. 
Um, and so tickets are available right now. If you just go to doxicon.org, uh, you'll be able to find that. Um, and ticket sales are going to be closing August 1st, so hurry up and get your, your tickets now. Very cool. I'll be sure to include at least the um, the presentations, the Doxicon presentations that we mentioned over the course of the conversation in the show notes, and I'll include oh, thank you. For, for registration in the show notes as well. Because I think for folks who are in the area, uh, these are conversations that would really interest them in mm, terms of cool. our audience. So thanks for, for representing this project. I think it's a really exciting one, and uh, it's a lot of really fruitful ground for discussion. Thank you. And Jonathan, uh, thanks for joining us as well. Yeah. Was, uh, no worries. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome. All right, gentlemen. Take care. Thanks so much. Have a good night, guys. Bye. Thank you.